We're in chapter 13 of Romans this month. Last week it was the church and the state. Today the church in the state. Really honing in on this idea articulated in verse 10 here that love does no wrong to a neighbor, which encompasses a lot of non-Christian people, really all non-Christian people, because when you put this in a biblical uh, categorization, your neighbor uh, is one not in Christ. Typically when the Bible's talking about neighbors, they're talking about people not in Christ, whereas when the Bible talks about brothers, sisters, those are folks in Christ. But we're called to love both. The same kind of love to neighbors, to brothers. The difference is we expect brothers and sisters of ours in Jesus to love us back. There is a, a reciprocal nature uh, to that, whereas neighbors, we don't expect them to love us back. Now, they may. Love for neighbor might return love for us, but it might, it might flow only one way. And oftentimes, it does flow only one way. It may even be that our neighbors treat us as their enemies, regardless of how winsome or otherwise nice to them we might be. The church is attractive and offensive both. We've talked a lot about that particular principle uh, through other series. But it's been observed that, uh, I think G.K. Chesterton was the one that said, the Lord calls us to love our neighbors and our enemies because they're usually one and the same uh, person. And we've all found that to be true. And yet we all, we all have a lot in common with our neighbors. Again, neighbors is looking outside the church to those we share the community with. And in sharing the community with them, that means that our neighbors are also governed as we are. We are all under someone's uh, jurisdiction. And we discussed last week in this chapter what it means for the church to be governed that being governed is included in this outworking of presenting ourselves to God as living sacrifices. Uh, that's chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Everything now following is that action of saying, uh, I am a living slain thing, which we talked about back in chapter 12. It's not a zombie idea, which is creepy. But it's um, the, the, the reality of uh, I've, I've, I've rendered myself a burnt offering. Uh, that, that I've given myself over to God for his use in the world. And God says to us through his apostle here in this chapter, we are uh, living in a shared world. This really comes home to us when we're in Christ. And that shared world is a governed world. And so Christians are to be neither ungovernable, uh, nor are we to uh, be dismissive of our neighbors. We've got it here in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Now I want to... Uh, in picking back up here in chapter 13, I want to go back to chapter 11, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 12 for just a moment to verses 14 and 15 in chapter 12 because I think this will help us with uh, where we are in chapter 13. If you look back at chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, you get these one-liners, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I double back around to this because it gives us some shape, and we need that. You just read chapter 13, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, and you, you ask questions. Well, what does that look like? And you can go back into chapter 12, which is instruction uh, of, for the body, both within the body and outside the body. And you can look back there in chapter 12, and you say, well, this is what gives it shape. Uh, even if my neighbor persecutes me, uh, I have a, a, a higher law 
that I'm under, and it is the law of love that's demonstrated here in the ministry and the, and the self-sacrifice, self-giving of Christ. But governing authorities, we're in this context of governing authorities in, in Romans 13, governing authorities are also our neighbors. It's kind of a double, a double function. And, and what chapter 12, verse 15 is talking about is empathy. Looking at it again there, 12, 15. Just doubling back to this to give us a sense of how this is flavored in chapter 13. Chapter 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. He's commending to us the quality of empathy, which doesn't come out of personality. It actually comes out of theology. I mean, my personality is not naturally empathetic. That doesn't, I hope that doesn't mean I'm cruel or, um, you know, a hard person to be around. But I'm not naturally empathetic. Uh, where I've gained in empathy is, is hopefully getting closer to Jesus and recognizing that, uh, that he wants me to, he really does want me to put energies into uh, learning how to treat my brothers and sisters, but also how to treat my neighbors. And empathy is, uh, I love the definition that Joe Aldrich gave years ago that uh, empathy is the ability to become a naturalized citizen of another's world. It's a beautifully uh, well put because you are entering into another's world. Uh, their joys you, you, you participate in, even if, if you want the same joy, but you don't get it. It's withheld for you or, or just not something you're going to experience. And, and you weep with those who weep, even if you don't know what it's like to go through what they're going through. Empathy is the point. It's one way that... Uh, Love does no wrong to a neighbor as we don't withhold empathy uh, from them. But none of this is easy. Uh, this is not easy to do with one another among, among the body of Christ, uh, much less outside to a neighbor. What I'm about to say I get from Francis Schaeffer. A lot of you will re remember uh, him. He died in the early 80s, but uh, the founder of Labrie, the uh, ministry that uh, a lot of backpackers around Europe back in the 60s and 70s would find their way to Schaefer's Chalet in Switzerland, and, and he would uh, work uh, with a lot of young people in, in trying to uh, ascertain what Christian belief is and why they were drawn to agnosticism and atheism and all of that. Francis Schaefer pointed out that Jesus has actually given our neighbors, think about this, Jesus has actually given our neighbors the right to judge our faith if they uh, don't observe any love uh, among ourselves for one another. Schaefer wrote, if people, by which he meant neighbors, by people, neighbors, people out there, if they observe to us that it seems to them that we don't love our, our fellow Christians, our, our people who are in Christ, if we hold grudges against each other and withhold empathy from one another, etc., and so on, Schaefer said, our response to that should be to go home, get down on our knees, and ask God, are they right? <laughs> Not to get angry at them, but to say, Lord, uh, is my neighbor noticing something that's either a blind spot in me or just a point of disbelief, uh, disbelief or, or uh, disobedience? Because when the neighbor says, you know, it doesn't look like to me that, that Christians really do love each other, they're only exercising a prerogative that Jesus gave them. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. He said that to the body. Now, here in chapter 13, in the context of being governed, I sure hope you're not hearing this as just some sort of glorified civics lesson because there's a, there's a, there's a lot here for us to get in that being governed is a big part of life. Whether we think about it or not, it is. And so in this context of being governed, we're told... 
we won't wrong our neighbors. It, it's put principally, love does no wrong to a neighbor. I'm kind of keying on this here in verse 10 because the rest of it uh, sort of, it's the hub that it all re revolves around here. It's essentially saying that we're being told that we won't wrong our neighbors if we're operating in and by the law of love, the love of Jesus. And included within this, if you take as broad a view of this as we can, what we're being told here, that we don't wrong our neighbors by pushing them further from Christ if they see that we don't really love one another. It's, it's actually unloving to neighbors also if we're unloving to one another within the body. And I think this is why a letter like 1 John exists where over and over again, John is saying to us in that letter, how can you say you love God and hate your brother? And it gives the, uh, the people outside the faith uh, cause to be pushed further away from Christ when they don't see us loving one another. I want to come at our three verses here in chapter 13 today from two angles. Uh, often take this, this tack. I think it's helpful. Two angles. The first thing in looking at verses 8 through 10 that I want us to consider is the necessary restraint put on the church uh, in the state. Not by the state, but the necessary restraint that God puts on the church in the state. That'll be our first point. And then second, our consideration will be the needed resiliency of the church in the state. So we'll talk about the necessary restraint put on the church in the state and the, and the needed resiliency of the church in the state. First, the necessary restraint put on the church by God. That's what stood out to me when I first read verses 8 through 10, thinking about this sermon, putting my thoughts together. I looked at the verses here and said, you know, there's a lot of limitation here. Don't you see that as well? Verse 8, oh, no one anything. That's restraining. That's limiting. All these thou shalt nots in verse 9. He's just quoting the Ten Commandments. They certainly restrain us, as well as thou shall at the end of verse 9. End of verse 9, he's basically saying that every commandment God gave is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's restraint coming and going. What if my neighbor wrongs me and I want to avenge myself or feel that I need to? What if I want to trade in curses instead of blessing? Verse 10 Love does no wrong to a neighbor. This constrains us. God is putting a kind of restraint on his church in the state. And I said this is necessary. Why is it necessary? Well, it's about accountability to higher law. For the Christian, it's not, I mean, we need to understand this. For a believer, it's not legislation from the state legislature or from, from Congress. It's not legislation that restrains us from wronging our neighbors. I mean, Christians operate in the world where we, we don't even need that. It's there because the world has fallen. But it's not there for us. It's there for the wrongdoer, as we talked about earlier in chapter 13. And so Christians have this accountability to the law of love, which is what verse 9 is articulating. Look at the end of verse 9 after he quotes the Ten Commandments through verse 9. He basically is saying that, Every other commandment is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus here. That's the law of love. This is our experience. Why, why are we to uh, uh, love our neighbor as ourselves? Because this is our experience in Christ. This is our experience of Christ. This is exactly what he gave to us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit loved you and me, though we wronged him. 
law of love, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, wherever Paul says law here in verses 8 through 10, he means the law of Moses back in the Old Testament. And the love that fulfilled the requirements of the law and broke the law as a binding system, no longer applicable as a binding system, is the love that took Jesus to the cross. Now, this is interesting to me. I, gosh, I hope it's interesting to you. Otherwise, you're having a miserable time. Uh, that he says this. This is what I, I find interesting. Look at the way he puts this in verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. That's an interesting way of putting it. He doesn't say in this law, although it is a law. But then he says this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This word, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, is sourced in the law of Moses. You can go back and look at it in Leviticus. Jesus said the whole thrust of the law of Moses was summed up in that particular commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But Paul refers to it as this word. And what I find interesting about that here in verse 9 is that when we see word in a context like this one, we don't just think Bible. We think living word of God as well. We think Bible, but we also think the living incarnate word of God. The word that took on flesh in order to show us the love of God with skin on it, if you will. Word has that connotation all through the New Testament. We're talking about the Bible. We're also talking about Jesus. Now, I emphasize word here this way because we don't talk about the law of love being fulfilled as verses 8 and 10 say. Verse 8 says the law of love is fulfilled. Verse 10 says the law of love is fulfilled. We don't talk about this without our reference point being who Jesus is and what Jesus uh, has done. If I just said to you, if I just got up here in the pulpit and we turned to this passage and I said to you, see, this law of love is still binding on us, now go and obey. <laughs> well, Paul's teaching that, but if that's all he's teaching, how is that not a burden imposed even appealing to the law of love is still law. Law that we didn't keep. Law that we don't keep. Law that we cannot keep flawlessly and many times in our lives haven't even kept well. So what's going on here? Every law, whether it's from God or the state, is something that is binding. We get that. That's basic. That's eighth grade civics. You learned that in, in my case it was Coach Childers class. Uh, back in Hamilton, Alabama in the eighth grade. But law can also be burdensome. Even the law of love can be burdensome. Who can do it? I mean, this was this, Jesus says this is the center of the law. This is the bullseye. And he's telling Israel, you missed it. You whiffed. Uh, you, you, were, you were pitched something you, you could hit, but you didn't, you didn't want to hit it. It wasn't that you, 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 you weren't swinging the bat. Miss, you didn't want to hit it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, he said, that's law. It is law. And even the law of love we find burdensome until Jesus keeps that law on our behalf. And now suddenly, because he's kept that law for me, now I'm interested in seeing what I can do with that because I know him. The motivational structures of my heart 
have changed and are changing. So I say that to say this, if or when we successfully love our neighbors as ourselves, do you realize that we are also in this giving witness to the state of our greater submission to Jesus? If you remember last week's uh, message, this is the other shoe that goes with it. Why the instruction we have here in chapter 13 is so much more than a civics lesson. Law keeping, as we addressed last week in verses 1 through 7, keeping the laws of the land with the caveat, so long as the laws of the land do not mandate that we disobey God. He is our higher authority. But law keeping is only part of the church's witness to the state of our submission to Jesus. The other part is here. That when we love our neighbor as we love ourselves due to Jesus, what we are showing the state is that we are submitted to an ethic that goes above and beyond self-interest. Because listen, you can be law-abiding and still be entirely self-interested. Because being law-abiding by itself that doesn't ask us to go above and beyond self-interest. I mean, you can, you can obey the, the laws of the land simply because you don't want to get in trouble. You can obey the laws of the land and be completely self-absorbed and self-interested. Paul is saying to us in this chapter, we obey the laws of the land, well and good. But not because the government has to make us. No, it's because of this law of love incarnated by Jesus so compellingly that I don't mind then, as he's changing me, having some restraint put upon me by him when he says to me, no, Cole, you know, I really do want you to invest some energies, real energies, in learning how to love your neighbor. I didn't just say it. I've resourced you for this. It's part of your redemption. And so if I refuse this, resist it, am, am dismissive of it, I miss relating to my Savior. Every relationship in your life is, is more than just the person in front of you. If God is involved with our lives intimately and intricately as much as we say that he is, then uh, he is involved in every relationship in your life, even the ones that are difficult and challenging. Continually teaching us. Remember Romans 12, 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, Romans 12, 2. When did we ever do, when do we ever do the perfect will of God? Never, except when we believe in his son. You did Romans 12, 2 at the point of belief, and then it gets worked out in all these ways that we're looking at passage by passage as we go through the rest of Romans. But when we exchanged our unrighteousness and self-righteousness for his righteousness, then and only then are we doing the will of God perfectly and only then because of what's been done for us previously. But when this happens, when you're made righteous, never to be rejected by God again, we're also resourced by God to live this righteousness out in a very, a very flawed world, a very fallen society where our neighbors... They will wrong us at times and where it's possible for us to wrong them. It's in Christ that it really comes home to us that this is a shared world and my submission to Jesus makes up the biggest part in my sharing it. But I say again to you, none of this 
None of this is easy to do. Obedience to God will, in fact, place us in great tension with the world. It will even place us in great tension with ourselves. But this is the necessary experience of restraint that is put upon the church in the state. Let me give you an incredible example of this from almost 50 years ago now. Many of you know the name John Perkins. I've heard him speak uh, a few times. Uh, I've been pleased to meet him. John Perkins, uh, way back uh, during the civil rights uh, era, was uh, uh, jailed in Brandon, Mississippi, just outside Jackson. And he describes in his uh, story, A Quiet Revolution, what happened to him that night in that jail in Brandon, Mississippi. He'd been participating in a nonviolent civil rights march. The police uh, intervened and uh, took Perkins and some of his fellows to jail, and this is what happened. During my night in the jail at Brandon, God began something new in my life. In the midst of the crowded, noisy jailhouse, between the stomping and the blackjacking that we received, between the moments when one of the patrolmen put his pistol to my head and pulled the trigger, click, and when another later took a fork and bent the two middle prongs down and pushed the other two up my nose until blood came out, between the reality and the insanity, between the consciousness and unconsciousness that would sweep across my dizzy mind, between my terror and my unwillingness to break down, between my pain and my fear, and those little snatches of thought when in some miraculous way I could at once be the spectacle and the spectator, God pushed me past hatred just for a little while, moments at a time. How could I hate when there was so much to pity? How could I hate people I suddenly did not recognize who had somehow moved past the outer limits of what it means to be human? But I don't think it was just the pity I had or the deep sickness I saw alone that pushed me past hatred. It was also the fact that I was broken too. The Brandon jail experience might just have been a way of God bringing me to the place where he could expand his love in me and extend my calling to white people as well as black people. And I believe that it was in my own broken state that the depth of the sickness in those men struck home to me and the fact that I was just like them, totally depraved. I had evidence before me and in myself that every human being is depraved. There's something built into all of us that makes us want to be superior. If the black man had the advantage, he'd be just as bad. So I cannot hate the white man. It's a spiritual problem, black or white. We all need to be born again. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Now, you and I will probably never have to face anything like that. But how do we, in much less much lesser circumstances, how do we credibly demonstrate the restraint put on us by God to do no wrong to a neighbor? And remember, governing authorities are also our neighbors. The necessary restraint put upon the church is not for its own sake. It's not passivity. It's, it's not pacifism necessarily. People make a biblical case for that. I understand. What this is designed to do is to give us a kind of leverage, actually, wherein we make submission to Jesus credible. The state is made up of neighbors of all kinds. And our interest in the state is to show that we are submitted to an ethic that goes above and beyond self-interest, which is entirely attributable to the transformative relationship Jesus has established with us in his keeping the law of love flawlessly, the state wants us to keep its laws, obviously. 
But the state needs to see us also going above and beyond self-interest. Because as we do, we point above and beyond ourselves to the one who works this in us. And so, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Ray Ortland, pastor in Nashville, has written that after we mistreat someone, if we let ourselves get away with it, we know we mistreated them. We kind of let ourselves get away with it. We let ourselves do it. He says what happens inside of us is we go into the turbo mode of self-justification. He says we find more and more faults in that person in order to justify an exalted image of ourselves. It's a very tangled web we weave when we need to do wrong to another, when we need to run another down, when we need to, to, to misconstrue what they're about. God puts a restraint upon us in these ways so that we don't get all tangled up in our own self-deceit. It's a pitiful thing to see. You've heard it said that love is blind. <laughs> There's reasons why people say that. But actually, when you're operating from a, a gospel perspective, love sees quite well. Love sees its way clear of wronging our neighbors out of a, a, of a higher allegiance to who Jesus is, what he's about, and what I want my neighbors to experience of him. The self-deceit that would justify wronging my neighbors, that's what's blind. Second consideration, more brief than the first, the needed resiliency of the church and the state. We've given some consideration to the necessary restraint put on the church by God, the church in the state, and now... A few thoughts on the needed resiliency of the church and the state. Again, we're in this context of being governed, being subject to governing authorities, whether we like them or not. And sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. I have no doubt that God has often used and still uses the state to develop resiliency in his church. He does. Particularly when the state turns on the church. John Perkins' story that I shared earlier, think back on that. Perkins said, God actually used the mistreatment that he suffered being beaten within an inch of his life in that, in that jail situation. God used that abuse he suffered at the hands of law enforcement, at the hands of governing authorities to actually break him of his own hatred that he could have easily been consumed by. That didn't make what those men did to him right, but John Perkins said, what his testimony is, is basically the testimony of Joseph. To his brothers, remember that? What you meant for evil in my life, God meant for good in a way that made John Perkins a more resilient servant of Jesus. Today in his 80s, still serving the Lord marvelously. Resiliency. I don't know what you think of when you think of this word. But I want to put it to you this way, that resiliency is not just the ability to endure something. It's not just the ability to bounce back. I think it's more than that. I think resiliency means to come out on the other side of what you've endured without cynicism, without hard-heartedness, without, without the, the poisoning of a bitter spirit. I mean, it's one thing to endure and then come out bitter. It's nothing to endure and come out saying, I, I, somehow in all of that darkness and terror, I got more of God. 
Well, that's resilient. And that's what we're being aimed at. Resiliency is what will help us keep a soft heart toward our neighbors. You've probably heard it said you've got to develop a thick skin and a soft heart. That's easier to say than to pull off. But all of us have to be kept from stockpiling an arsenal of grievances against people in the world who maybe haven't wronged us personally but are wrong in their thoughts and their views and their desires and their speeches and their actions and all the rest of it. Keeping these commandments. It's actually for our neighbor's sake. You realize that? If you abide the commandments, verse 9, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, you leave your neighbors in better shape than you found them. That's the purpose of the commandments. It's to, it's to restrain us. But there's also a resiliency in this because when you look at this text as I look at it, don't, don't you, aren't you met with some of your own glaring failures? I mean, mine are here. And what do you do about that? I've done wrong to my neighbors, even if it's just in the way I've talked about them. Uh, I've, I've been there. I've done that. What do I do with glaring failures in a text like this? Remember Scott Hamilton? He was the figure skating champion, 84 Olympics, I think. And he was the longtime figure skating television commentator. Guys, your wives made you watch that in the Winter Olympics. And, uh, you know... Well, during the last Winter Olympics, uh, I think Scott Hamilton's a believer, uh, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, don't quote me on that. Okay, go ahead and Google it. I know you want to. Um, but in the last Olympics, there was an article that uh, came out about Scott Hamilton because the, the, um, his uh, commentary was no longer needed uh, on the NBC networks. They'd given the figure skating to two other uh, former skaters. And they were asking him about this. And here's what he said. I calculated once how many times I fell during my skating career. 41,600 times, he said. But I got up 41,600 times. Scott Hamilton said, that's the muscle you have to build in your psyche, the one that reminds you to just get up. Well, that psychic muscle is built in failure. Spiritual muscle, resiliency, is built the same way too. And I, and I don't mean to suggest that all failure is the same. I wouldn't say that it's not. There are catastrophic failures with consequences one may not be able to get up from. It's one thing for an Olympian to fall thousands of times on his way to a gold medal. Uh, Scott Hamilton had to get his jumps and his signature backflip just right. But even with all his falls and years of practice and competition, he was clearly not a failure at figure skating. What I'm trying to say to you is that when it comes to the truth before us here in this text, I don't find it easy, but I want you to understand that um, growth is a form of succeeding. I think we underestimate this. We want strides in Christ, and sometimes steps is enough. Resiliency is a muscle that needs to be developed, and so I, I say growth is a form of succeeding, but you don't grow without some experiences in failing. Have you ever left someone owing them something? Have you broken these commandments? Have you wronged your neighbor? Okay, probably all have. But what have you learned? What have you learned? Have you learned anything from those failures? Have you grown to where it takes more now to get you to fail? And you see the progress. 
You are a better neighbor now. You don't covet like you used to. You, you experience more contentment, and you know you do. And you thank God for that because you know it's his move in your life. This truth cleanses even as it confronts. I needed it this week. Growth is a form of succeeding. I had a growth curve even this week. Angry preaching is a failure of preaching. I've known that a long time. Ambrose Bierce, the old 19th century novelist, said, speak when you're angry and you make the best speech you'll ever regret. There's a lot of truth to that. I wasn't angry at you leading up to making some points last week, which I knew would be controversial in the context of governing authority, where I critiqued how evangelicals often baptize our patriotism. I'd written it into my notes, but then suddenly when I got into it, I was angry, and I tried to deny it. It wasn't directed at anyone here, though there's been evidence in my 16 years here of people in our congregation baptizing their patriotism and equating the church and the state and all of that. But I put the finger in your chest last week and, and had a number of people affirm the point that I was trying to make and appreciated the courage it took um, in this conservative context. But that was really about my dad. We uh, conflicted on this point of baptized patriotism. His conservatism got more inflamed as he got older. <clears throat> and he didn't appreciate me not seeing things his way. I felt he was wronging his neighbors in how he carried his views. Without going into detail, our otherwise good relationship got strained. This is not what you talk about at the funeral, but it's what you process. And so I realized in the moment last Sunday when I was off on that branch, sawing myself off of it, I clearly haven't resolved some of that. And so what I said last week, the legitimate point that I was trying to make, it came out too hot. I think what I've realized over the last couple of months since dad died in March is that <clears throat> grief over the loss of a father, the finality of last illness, the grief of loss can begin way before then when something comes between us and stays there and a part of your relationship dies. Namely, the enjoyable part. And so when I found myself saying last week, I've confronted you on this point before and you don't listen to me, I wasn't talking to you. And that was unprofessional of me. But I didn't know that was going to happen until it did. So forgive me the offense that caused a number of you. And I regret in causing offense that the point, a point you probably need to grapple with was lost because my manner was off. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does no wrong to a father. At least it tries not to. Love does no wrong to anyone. I don't know about you. Uh, maybe I'm more prideful than most. I wouldn't doubt it if I am. But I just don't find this truth easy at all. And yet at the same time, I find myself unbelievably aggravated when we don't follow it. How much more clear could Jesus be? 
And yet I, I'm an evangelical, and you are, and I know evangelicals, and I know that we give ourselves all these self-justifications for taking what Jesus said and flushing it. When it comes to people in government we don't like or people we do like, it's just, it's just a crazy time. But you know what the next verse says? Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, this is where we'll pick up next week, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. And I say, thank God. I love that that's put right here. Because just when I'm feeling bad about how hard I find this truth, <laughs> the Lord says, there's a limited time for application. And then I'm going to rescue you and it'll all be fine. And you're not going to get in based on the merits of whether you did this or not. And see, that makes me want to do it all the more. It's funny how that motivation works. It's not that I want to do obedience because I feel like I've got to get or keep the Lord's approval. It really is better when it comes from, man, you've got his approval. And now obey. Now trust that what he directs, the, the paths in which he directs us are the best paths. Well, that's all I'm going to say. I'm tired of preaching. I'm going to give you the benediction, and I'm walking out. Stand up, and let's pray. I'm sorry. I don't want to talk to anybody after this sermon. <clears throat> Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.